The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. Sir Francis Galton. Francis Galton was born on February 16, 1822, near Birmingham, England. He was the youngest of seven children and the first cousin of Charles Darwin. His father, a wealthy banker, insisted on educating Francis at home especially considering that Francis could read at two and a half years old. Later in his childhood, Francis Galton was sent off to boarding school, which he despised and criticized even in adulthood. At age 16, he went to medical school at King's College at Oxford. He finished his degree at Cambridge in 1843 at the age of 21. Around this time, his father died leaving Galton a wealthy young aristocrat. He traveled extensively and became a member of the Royal Geographical Society, for which he developed maps of new territories and accounts of his adventures. He became president of that organization in 1856. Galton had a penchant for measuring everything, extending even to the behinds of women he encountered on his travels in Africa, something he had to do from a distance, of course, by means of triangulation. This interest in measurement led to his invention of the weather map, including highs, lows, and front, terms that he introduced, and to suggesting the use of fingerprints to Scotland Yard. Galton's obsession with quantification led to his efforts at measuring intelligence. In 1869, he published the book Hereditary Genius, An Inquiry into Its Laws and Consequences. In this book, he demonstrates that the children of geniuses tend to be geniuses themselves. In 1874, he produced English Men of Science, Their Nature and nurture. Based on long surveys passed out to thousands of established scientists. In this volume, Galton noted that although the potential for high intelligence is still clearly inherited, that it also needed to be nurtured at home to come to full fruition. In particular, the broad liberal education provided by the Scottish school system proved far superior to the English school system that he hated so much. In 1883, he wrote Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. This would be the first time that anyone compared identical and fraternal twins, a method now considered ideal when investigating nature versus nurture issues. In 1888, Galton published Correlations and Their Measurement, chiefly from anthropometric data. As the title suggests, it was Galton who invented correlation, as well as scatter plots and regression toward the mean. Later, 
statistician Carl Pearson, 1857 to 1936, would discover the mathematical formulation for correlation. Francis Galton was knighted Sir Francis for his contributions to science. Sir Francis Galton died in 1911 after an incredibly productive, if somewhat eccentric, life. Selection from Hereditary Talent and Character by Francis Galton, 1865. The power of man over animal life, in producing whatever varieties of form he pleases, is enormously great. It would seem as though the physical structure of future generations was almost as plastic as clay, under the control of the breeder's will. It is my desire to show more pointedly than, so far as I am aware, has been attempted before, that mental qualities are equally under control. So far as I am aware, no animals have ever been bred for general intelligence. Special aptitudes are thoroughly controlled by the breeder. He breeds dogs that point, that retrieve, that fondle, or that bite. But no one has ever yet attempted to breed for high general intellect, irrespective of all other qualities. It would be a most interesting subject for an attempt. We hear constantly of prodigies of dogs whose very intelligence makes them of little value as slaves. When they are wanted, they are apt to be absent on their own errands. They are too critical of their master's conduct. For instance, an intelligent dog shows marked contempt for an unsuccessful sportsman. He will follow nobody along a road that leads to a well-known tedious errand. He does not readily forgive a man who wounds his self-esteem. He is often a dexterous thief and a sad hypocrite. For these reasons, an over-intelligent dog is not an object of particular desire. And therefore, I suppose, no one has ever thought of encouraging a breed of wise dogs. But it would be a most interesting occupation for a country philosopher to pick up to take the cleverest dogs he could hear of and mate them together, generation after generation, breeding purely for intellectual power and disregarding shape, size, and every other quality. As we cannot doubt that the transmission of talent is as much through the side of the mother as through that of the father, how vastly would the offspring be improved supposing distinguished women to be commonly married to distinguished men, generation after generation, their qualities being in harmony and not in contrast, according to rules of which we are now ignorant, but which a study of the subject would be sure to evolve. It has been said by Bacon that, quote, great men have no continuance. I, however, find that very great men are certainly not averse to the other sex, for some such have been noted for their illicit intercourses, and, I believe, for corresponding amounts of illegitimate issue. Great lawyers are especially to be blamed in this, 
even more than poets, artists, or great commanders. It seems natural to believe that a person who is not married, or who, if married, does not happen to have children, should feel himself more vacant to attractions of a public or literary career than if he had the domestic cares and interests of a family to attend to. Thus, if we take a list of the leaders in science to the present day, the small number of them who have families is very remarkable. Perhaps the best selection of names we can make is from those who have filled the annual scientific office of President of the British Association. We will take the list of the commoners simply, lest it should be objected, though unjustly, that some of the noblemen who have occupied the chair were not wholly indebted to their scientific attainments for that high position. Out of 22 individuals, about one-third have children. One-third are or have been married and have no children, and one-third have never been married. Among the children of those who have had families, the names of Frank Buckland and Alexander Herschel are already well known to the public. There has been a popular belief that men of great eminence are usually of feeble constitution and of a dry and cold disposition. There may be such instances, but I believe the general rule to be exactly the opposite. Such men, so far as my observation and reading extend, are usually more manly and genial than average, and by the aid of those very qualities they obtain a recognized ascendancy. It is a great and common mistake to suppose that high intellectual powers are commonly associated with puny frames and small physical strength. Men of remarkable eminence are almost always men of vast powers of work. Those among them that have fallen into sedentary ways will frequently astonish their friends by their physical feats when they happen to be in the mood of a vacation ramble. The Alpine Club contains a remarkable number of men of fair literary and scientific distinction, and those are among the strongest and most daring of the climbers. I believe, from my own recollections of the thews and energies of my contemporaries and friends of many years at Cambridge, that the first half-dozen classmen in classics or mathematics would have beaten, out of all proportion, the last half-dozen classmen in any trial of physical strength or endurance. Most notabilities have been great eaters and excellent digesters, on literally the same principle that the furnace which can raise more steam than is usual for one of its size burns more freely and well than is common. Most great men are vigorous animals, with exuberant powers, and an extreme devotion to a cause. There is no reason to suppose that, in breeding for the highest order of intellect, we should produce a sterile or feeble race. Many forms of civilization have been peculiarly unfavorable to the hereditary transmission of rare talent, none of them more prejudicial to it than that of the Middle Ages, where almost every youth of genius was attracted into the church and enrolled in the ranks of a celibate clergy. Another great hindrance to it is a costly tone of society, like that of our own, where it becomes a folly for a rising man to encumber himself with domestic expenses, 
which custom exacts, and which are larger than his resources are able to meet. Here also genius is celibate, at least during the best period of manhood. A spirit of caste is also bad, which compels a man of genius to select a wife from a narrow neighborhood or from members of a few families. But a spirit of clique is not bad. I understand that in Germany it is very much the custom for professors to marry the daughters of other professors, and I have some reason to believe, but I'm anxious for further information before I can feel sure of it, that the enormous intellectual digestion of German literary men, which far exceeds that of the corresponding class of our own countrymen, may, in some considerable degree, be traceable to this practice. So far as beauty is concerned, the custom of many countries, of the nobility purchasing the handsomest girls they could find for their wives, has laid the foundation of a higher type of features among the ruling classes. It is not so very long ago in England that it was thought quite natural that the strongest lance at the tournament should win the fairest or the noblest lady. The lady was the prize to be tilted for. She rarely objected to the arrangement, because her vanity was gratified by the proceeding. Now, history is justly charged with a tendency to repeat itself. We may, therefore, reasonably look forward to the possibility, I do not venture to say the probability, of a recurrence of some such practice of competition. What an extraordinary effect might be produced on our race if its object was to unite in marriage those who possess the finest and most suitable natures, mental, moral, and physical. Let us, then, give rein to our fancy and imagine a utopia, a laputa, if you will, in which a system of competitive examination for girls, as well as for youths, had been so developed as to embrace every important quality of body and mind, and where a considerable sum was yearly allotted to the endowment of such marriages as promised to yield children who would grow into eminent servants of the state. We may picture to ourselves an annual ceremony in that utopia in which the senior trustee of the endowment fund would address ten deeply blushing young men, all of twenty-five years old, in the following terms. Gentlemen, I have to announce the results of a public examination conducted on established principles, which show that you occupy the foremost places of your year, in respect to those qualities of talent, character, and bodily vigor, which are proved, on the whole, to do most honor and best service to our race. An examination has also been conducted on established principles among all the young ladies of this country, who are now of the age of twenty-one, and I hardly need to remind you that this examination takes note of grace, beauty, health, good temper, accomplished housewifery, and disengaged affections, in addition to noble qualities of heart and brain. By a careful investigation of the marks you have severally obtained, and a comparison of them, always on established principles, with those obtained by the most distinguished among the young ladies, we have been enabled to select ten of their names with a special reference to your individual qualities. It appears that marriages between you and these ten ladies, according to the list I hold in my hand, 
would offer the probability of unusual happiness to yourselves, and, what is of paramount interest to the state, would probably result in extraordinarily talented issue. Under these circumstances, if any or all of these marriages should be agreed upon, the sovereign herself will give away the brides at a high and solemn festival six months hence in Westminster Abbey. We, on our part, are prepared in each case to assign $50,000 as a wedding present, and to defray the cost of maintaining and educating your children out of the ample funds entrusted to our disposal by the state. If a twentieth part of the costs and pains were spent in measures for the improvement of the human race that is spent on the improvement of the breed of horses and cattle, what a galaxy of genius we might not create! We might introduce prophets and high priests of our civilization into a world as surely as we can propagate idiots by mating cretins. Men and women of the present day are, to those we might hope to bring into existence, what the pariah dogs of the streets of an eastern town are to our own highly bred varieties. And finally... Galton offers some observations about Americans. Let us consider an instance in which different social influences have modified the inborn dispositions of a nation. The North American people has been bred from the most restless and combative class of Europe. Whenever, during the last ten or twelve generations, a political or religious party has suffered defeat, its prominent members whether they were the best or only the noisiest, have been apt to emigrate to America as a refuge from persecution. Men fled to America for conscience's sake and for that of unappreciated patriotism. Every scheming knave, every brutal ruffian who feared the arm of the law also turned his eyes in the same direction. Peasants and artisans whose spirit rebelled against the tyranny of society and the monotony of their daily life, and men of a higher position who chafed under conventional restraints, all yearned toward America. Thus the dispositions of the parents of the American people have been exceedingly varied and usually extreme, either for good or for evil. But in one respect, they almost universally agreed. Every head of an emigrant family brought with him a restless character and a spirit apt to rebel. If we estimate the moral nature of Americans from their present social state, we shall find it to be just what we might have expected from such parentage. They are enterprising, defiant, and touchy impatient of authority, furious politicians, very tolerant of fraud and violence, possessing much high and generous spirit, and some true religious feeling, but strongly addicted to cant. The insincere but conventional expressions of enthusiasm for high ideals, goodness, or piety.
Alfred Binet. Born July 11, 1851, in Nice, France, Alfred Binet was an only child. His mother, an artist, raised him by herself after a divorce from his father, a physician. As a young man, Alfred Binet started studying medicine, but decided to study psychology on his own. Being independently wealthy left him free to do whatever he pleased. He worked with the psychiatrist Charcot at La Salpetre, where he studied hypnosis. In 1891, Alfred Binet moved to Paris to study at the Physiological Psychology Lab at the Sorbonne, where he developed a variety of research interests, especially, of course, involving individual differences. In 1899, Binet and his graduate student Theodore Simon, 1873 to 1961, were commissioned by the French government to study retardation in the French schools and to create a test to differentiate normal from retarded children. After marriage, Binet began studying his own two daughters and testing them with Piaget-like tasks and other tests. This led to the publication of The Experimental Study of Intelligence in 1903. In 1905, Binet and Simon came out with the Binet-Simon Scale of Intelligence, the first test permitting graduated direct testing of intelligence. They expanded the test to normal children in 1908 and to adults in 1911. Binet believed intelligence to be complex, with many factors, and not to be a simple, single entity. He did not like the use of a single number, as developed by William Stern in 1911, called the intelligence quotient, or IQ. Binet also believed that, though genetics may set upper limits on intelligence, most of us have plenty of room for improvement with the right kind of education. Binet cautioned that his tests should be used with restraint. Even a child two years behind his age level may later prove to be brighter than most. Binet was afraid that IQ would prejudice teachers and parents and that people would tend to view it as something fixed and to prematurely give up on kids who score low early on. Binet suggested something he called mental orthopedics, exercises in attention and thought that could help disadvantaged children learn how to learn. Binet died in 1911, a man way ahead of his time and wiser than most. Binet's fears were well-grounded. For example, Charles Spearman, 1863 to 1945, introduced the idea that general intelligence, or G, was real, unitary, and inherited. Worse were the antics of Henry Goddard, 1866 to 1957. Goddard translated the Binet-Simon test into English. He studied a family in New Jersey that he named the Calicacs. Some in this family were normal, but quite a few were feeble-minded, and that was Goddard's term. 
he traced the Kalakaks' genealogy to support this hereditary position. Because he believed that there was a close connection between feeble-mindedness and criminality, he recommended that states institute programs of sterilization for the feeble-minded. Twenty states in the United States passed such laws. Goddard also tested immigrants at the request of the Immigration Service. His testers found that 40 to 50 percent of immigrants were feeble-minded, and those were immediately deported. Goddard also cited particular countries as being more feeble-minded than others. Now keep in mind that these immigrants rarely spoke much English and were tested during the grueling process of passing through the bureaucracy of Ellis Island after a long ocean voyage in miserable conditions. The word eugenics, a term that was coined by Francis Galton, is the policy of intentionally breeding human beings according to some standard, and the sterilization of those who do not meet those standards. Eugenics became an institutionalized reality in 1907, when the Indiana legislature passed a law that made sterilization of defectives possible. A federal eugenics records office was established in Cold Spring Harbor, and their lawyers designed law in 1914 that was promoted as a model for the entire country. Virginia adopted such a law in 1924. Emma Buck and her daughter Carrie and infant granddaughter Vivian were judged to be feeble-minded, and their case, Buck v. Bell, was taken before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, under Oliver Wendell Holmes, came down in support of the sterilization laws. Holmes stated, quote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. End quote. Although scientists disputed the reasoning behind the sterilization laws, 33 states adopted them, and some 65,000 American citizens were sterilized. The National Socialists in Germany based their eugenics laws on the American ones and sterilized 350,000. Eugenics gradually became unpopular as the horrors of Nazi Germany became public and gradually ended in the 1940s. The Supreme Court has yet to reverse its opinion on the matter, however. People reading about eugenics and sterilization laws often think that this is a great example of how immoral scientists can be. In reality, the public support for these laws and the laws themselves were based on biblical passages. Passages from Genesis 1 that say, like comes from like. The very same passages used today by creationists. <laughs>